0: By steve with sense Fidel. i'm coming at you with a guest you've probably seen once or twice before on the interwebs philip campbell how you doing welcome back and uh thank you for doing this
1: you're welcome i'm always happy to do this program
0: we were talking about this two months ago and we ended up going with the development of doctrine by some guy you may have heard of john henry Cardinal newman and philip is a specialist in this topic and thankfully he was all like Yes, I, we can do this topic. This is a great idea. I know it's a great idea because it was mine. <laughs> Just kidding about this. Uh, humility. I am the most humble person you'll be. And anyways, we're so we've decided to come with the timing of everything that's going on in society, the church, et cetera, the airing, all this stuff, commotion on both sides, especially on the social media sites. And again, Phyllis graciously decided to come on and talk about this. So without further ado, <laughs> Professor Campbell, what Is development of doctrine.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks. That was quite an introduction. Um, (laughs) I I wouldn't say I'm an I'm an expert in development of doctrine, but I've I've studied Newman quite a bit, and uh, I read Newman when I first started getting into the Catholic Church. Um, I was I was born a Catholic, but didn't have any formation. I never made my first communion or anything like that when I was a kid. So I had to like kind of read my way back into the church as a young adult, and. um, when I came into the church at age 22, Newman was one of the the readers or the authors that I read. uh, And I read Development of Doctrine, his essay on Development of Doctrine, which he published in 1845, the same year that he came into the Catholic church. And I've come back to it many times throughout my life. And um, so Development of Doctrine, uh, I guess we'll start off by saying what it's not. (laughs) Development of Doctrine is not a doctrine itself. People often talk of The theory of development of doctrine as if this is a doctrine of the church or as if it's a theological truth. It's not. It is a historical theory. It is Newman's historical theory that purports to explain how legitimate developments within Catholicism grow organically from pre-existing concepts. So that's the first thing we need to understand: is development of doctrine is a historical theory. That looks back at things that actually happened in history, and offers an explanation for how to understand them within a Catholic framework. In other words, how is it that theological and, and spiritual and liturgical principles have developed from pre-existing concepts while still remaining true to their uh, to their foundations? So that's that's what it is. It's a historical theory about about how the more things change, the more they stay the same within Catholicism, ideally.
0: All I can think of is Seinfeld. Hello, Newman. But who was this Newman that we're talking about, John Henry Newman? And why did he write this essay? Now, full disclosure, I have the book, and I'm not smart like the other people. I just got bored with it. I turned a couple of pages. I looked up to this guy and go, sorry, John, I just can't put my mind around this. So for idiots like myself... (laughs) explain this for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he has, he has like a 70 page introduction explaining why he's about to make the argument that he does. (laughs) So you got to get through like his 70 page introduction. But um, Newman, of course, began as an Anglican uh, clergyman. He lived from 1801 to I think 1890, uh, the bulk of the uh, 19th century. He was a renowned Anglican clergyman and part of the the Tractarian movement, also known as the Oxford movement, which was a movement within Anglicanism to restore, uh, I guess we could say, more Catholic elements to the Anglican church, to move it away from its Puritan orientation and get back to a more uh, Anglo-Catholic expression of faith. Uh, And so he was part of a movement that promoted this through the study of the church fathers and a recovery of, medieval and patristic tradition. But in the process of this, he actually studied himself into the Catholic Church. He realized that Anglicanism was uh, was not faithful to um, the patristic uh, view of patristic teaching. And so he converted to Catholicism in 1845. Now, this was the same year he published the essay on development of Christian doctrine. And the reason he published this was because one of the standard arguments against Protestantism uh, then and today is that Protestantism is not his, is not in historical continuity with the early church. right? You look at the early church, you look at the things the church fathers believed, and then you look at Protestantism, and it it looks like a total rupture with what came before. and And that's, of course true. Uh, but the Protestants had a comeback to that, and the comeback was that, hey, look, Catholic, you you Catholics, you don't have continuity either. Um, your doctrine has developed. Your church today in, you know, in their day, in the 19th century, century doesn't look anything like in, this, in the second century. Um, where in the ancient church do we see uh, Eucharistic processions or praying the rosary or all the titles and things that are in the Catholic higher, like where are you seeing people in, in second century Judea being called Monsignor, you know, um, or, or all these different things that have clearly changed and developed in the Catholic church over time. So don't lecture us Catholics on how our theology doesn't maintain continuity with the father's. So yours doesn't either. And so Newman, uh, offers a rebuttal to this in his essay on development of Christian doctrine by, demonstrating how, yes, Catholicism has changed. It changes in an organic sense. It grows where concepts naturally flow one from the other in a very logical sequence, similar to the way a living being grows. Um, And this is fundamentally different from the way that Protestantism uh, changed, where they just came in the 16th century and said, everything that came before us was wrong and they just chucked the developments of the church. So Newman is trying to demonstrate here that not all change is like a rupture. There is change in continuity, and that sort of change is rightfully considered a development, and it should be embraced. So the way that Catholicism grows is fundamentally different than the way Protestantism emerged, and so that was why he wrote this essay.
0: That's good explanation. I never thought about the development from like a child to an adult, kind of like evolution. It's not a change of kind. It's just the development of a person. Right. So there's a lot of the uh, development of doctrine being talking about today, like uh, (laughs) contemporary ways. What is a contemporary relevance to this idea?
1: This is really why I wanted to talk about it, because you see this concept thrown about today a lot and thrown about in a very erroneous way. So I would say 80% of the discourse I see online about the development of doctrine is a misunderstanding or misapplication of the way Newman intended it. Um, and you find this mainly in two areas. Number one, amongst, um, I guess we'll just say progressives uh, or the, the heterodox wing <laughs> of, uh, of the, uh, the Catholic world. Those who want to completely remake the Catholic faith on a new ecclesiology, new theology, want to chuck everything before the Second Vatican Council. Um, these people will often um, hold up Newman's development of doctrine as a justification for what they are doing. So when we when we say, "Hey, this is this is not traditional. This doesn't have any continuity with what came before," they will say, "Well, doctrine changes, of course. So, you know, haven't you ever read Newman' uh, de- development of doctrine? Right, things change." So. Uh, we didn't have women priests before. Now we want them. That's development of doctrine, right? Um, we used to believe in transubstantiation. Now we don't. That's development of doctrine. Uh, so basically, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a mad lib, you know, where you fill in any word. You know, <laughs> it, it's it's kind of like any deviation, any heresy, any change. You just fill, you know, it, you can fill it in, and it's development of doctrine. Um, so that's a totally incorrect view of Newman's um, principle. But I also see this um, invoked by well-meaning, uh, conservative, orthodox, uh, mainstream normy theologians uh, as kind of like a, a placeholder or an explanation for uh, things in modern Catholic practice that just don't line up with the tradition. Uh, A classic example would be the church's about face on the death penalty, right? Um, We have the traditional teaching, and it's been affirmed at the Council of Trent, multiple catechisms going back centuries, that it is licit for the state to execute a convicted killer. And then you have John Paul uh, II saying, even though it is licit, maybe contemporary circumstances mean we shouldn't have recourse to it. And I would say that's a that's a legitimate argument. I'm not saying I bought that argument, but that is a legitimate argument. And then you go to where we have today, where it just says, where uh, Francis amends the catechism to just say, the death penalty is always immoral. Uh, and it's like, wait a minute, the Council of Trent literally says it's moral. And now the catechism says it's immoral. And uh, people will say, well, that's development of doctrine. <laughs> right? Uh, that's how doctrine develops. Um, and so well-meaning like conservative uh, theologians will invoke this as kind of like an explanation to, I guess, bring continuity between the pre- and post-conciliar church. Um, I, I sympathize with that approach, but um, I think this is also a mischaracterization of what Newman means by that, because if, if a doctrine can just develop into its opposite, right? If something that is moral can become immoral and vice versa... Uh, you know, if, if, if uh, divorced and civilly remarried could not receive communion and now they can, like in what sense is that a development? Uh, d- does development even mean anything at that point? So I have seen the sorry, there's a long-winded answer, but I've seen this concept being invoked time and again recently for these sorts of things. And it's really frustrating because having read this essay multiple times, neither of these applications are anything close to what Newman meant by it.
0: We do not use the word sorry on this program for any means. You can go as long as you want. The floor is yours. All uh, right. I was all thinking right. Mormonism at that time because they develop doctrine all the time by switching things. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Mormon, put-
1: Mormons have a concept where uh, new doctrine can actually displace old doctrine. Um, and uh, I can't remember the name, but Islam has a similar concept where newer. Revelations in the Quran displace older ones where uh, Allah can correct himself and make a newer revelation. Of course, there's nothing like that in Catholicism. We have one deposit of faith. It can be expanded upon over time. Right. But it it can't be amended. It can't be corrected. So we are in a position where uh, developments have to be recognized as legitimate outgrowths of what has what belongs to that deposit.
0: Speaking of which, good to turn into that. What what is a legitimate way of doctrine uh, development of doctrine?
1: Yeah. So, um, Newman. This is a big answer, <laughs> um, Newman. Uh, well, so to, to give an overall answer, a legitimate development of doctrine is a development that grows organically from the pre existing concepts. It preserves the pre existing concepts and, and and takes them to a new level. Uh, and it, um, it it represents continuity, okay? And it is organic and organic means pertaining to something that is alive, right? So if you look at a living human being, right? It starts as a uh, starts as a little tiny baby and then it grows. And even though the adult human looks very different from the infant human, you can still see a continuity, right? You can still see okay um 10 fingers, 10 toes, two arms, two legs, a head, the body functions this way. There's a continuity across time even though the form changes. So that is a legitimate development and Newman wants to distinguish legitimate developments from what he calls corruptions. And a corruption would be where you get to a certain point in time and then there's like a there's like a 180 where, uh, where someone says, okay, we're going to do something completely different, uh, or we're going to repudiate something that came before. So an example from church history of something that would be a corruption, um, for, for centuries, Christians had venerated holy images, um, icons in the East of, of Christ and the saints and Mary. And then when you get to the eighth century, the Byzantine emperors suddenly say, we're not going to venerate icons anymore. And they, they outlaw the veneration of icons and they order them whitewashed or destroyed in a heresy called iconoclasm, and they tried to say this is orthodoxy. Like they they tried to stuff the Episcopal sees of the East with bishops who would go along with this, and there were some. They 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 put the uh, the patriarch of Constantinople. They stuffed that that see with a supporter of iconoclasm. Uh, the monasteries were the ones that opposed it, but the the hierarchy, uh, being tools of the government at that time, were going along with it. And so you had them saying, this is the teaching, this is orthodoxy, but of course it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't is because there was no organic continuity with what came before. For centuries, Christians had venerated these icons, and now all of a sudden you're saying we can't. And so that is not a development, that's a corruption. And so Newman's principle is trying to distinguish what is a development from what is a corruption. Of course, we know in this situation, eventually... Um, the traditional practice was uh, reaffirmed, and the the Eastern Christians have a feast um, called the Feast of the Restoration of Orthodoxy. Whereas they they re- they recognize that iconoclasm was a corruption, was an interruption in Orthodox development, and they celebrate with a liturgical feast that they got back on track. <laughs> right. So um, that is the that is in a nutshell um, what a legitimate development is. But um, Newman actually breaks it down into seven, seven, uh, what he calls notes, seven characteristics of an authentic development. And, and if we can, I'd like to just go through all seven and explain them. And I think this will help flesh out this idea much further.
0: Go for it. We need David Letterman on. Number one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Number one with Paul, Paul Schaefer with the drum. <laughs> <laughs> yes, feel free, please. Pencil through the window. <laughs> um, so um, I think I just aged myself with that reference. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't worry, half the people won't get the Seinfeld sci- the Newman reference either.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I will read, uh, I will just read a list of Newman's seven notes of authentic development, and then we will go back and explain each one. So right. again, these are Newman's seven characteristics of what constitutes. A legitimate development, and ideally, uh, a legitimate development will um, will possess all all seven of these. Okay, you can have corruptions that might possess one or two of these, but it's like when when something possesses all of these, that is like the marks of a legitimate development. So, first is preservation of type, then continuity of principles, assimilative power, logical sequence anticipation of the future, conservative action upon its past, and chronic vigor. So those are the seven notes. And we'll go through and explain each one and show how they apply to organic developments. So the first one is preservation of type. And what Newman means by this is basically the idea of resemblance, that later developments resemble earlier stages of those ideas. kind of like what we were just saying with a child growing into an adult. An adult looks different from a child, but there is still a resemblance. You can look and see that this is the same being. Children do not grow up into fish. Uh, Baby chicks do not grow up into orangutans, right? There is a resemblance between the less mature form and the more mature form, um, even though there's still variation. So for example, you can look back to the early church and you can look at holy orders and see, okay, we have major orders and we have minor orders, uh, porter, lector, exorcist, acolyte, and, and that that's that exists. Maybe exactly what their liturgical functions were developed over time. The disciplines may have developed over time, but we can look at that and then we can go and look at, you know, say that the post-Tridentine church in the 16th century and see, okay, there, there it is, porter, lector, exorcist, acolyte, and, and onto major orders and we can recognize a continuity of form, a continuity of structure, whereas you look at, a, you know say, a, a Calvinist church or something like that, where they don't have anything like that, and you can say, okay, this is not the same thing as whatever that was in the third century. Mm-hmm. So preservation of type, I would say this is the most general uh, note of development, and it just denotes overall, uh, I guess we'd say structural resemblance. The second principle is um, the second note is what Newman calls continuity of principles. And um, every doctrine embodies some kind of principle. So for example, you look at all the church's doctrines around the sacrament of marriage, and they embody a certain principle. And that principle is that the sacrament of marriage is an indissoluble bond, right? Or you look at all the church's liturgical practices and doctrines around the Eucharist, And they all embody a certain principle, which is the real presence of Christ in the blessed sacrament. So so the principles are like the general ideas that uh, give shape to the doctrines, right? Every every doctrine is a working out of some general principle. And so Newman says that an authentic development will embody a continuity of those principles. So let's use the example of of, uh, matrimony. Obviously there's been development on the concept of matrimony over the church's history. Um, uh, In, in, in a, in in my book, the church in the dark ages, which is available through Ave Maria press. I have a whole chapter on this where we talk about how until the middle ages, it was still debated what even the form of the sacrament of matrimony was. There was changes in the celebration how many witnesses do you need to have? There was, there was alterations in, um, uh levels of consanguinity that is how closely you could be related to someone in order to marry them not a pressing issue for most of us <laughs> but in in you know among the nobility where you are expected to marry among certain families and everyone was related from generations um of uh, uh oh thank you where everyone might be related so this was an issue and they they changed over time from four you you couldn't be within four gener- uh, four degrees, and then they changed to two. So there has been development in the sacrament of marriage over time, but there has been a continuity of principle underneath it all. The principle that even if we aren't sure and debated what the form of the sacrament is, even if we've changed some particulars about how it's celebrated, we've always agreed on the underlying principle that marriage represents an indissoluble bond. So you can look at. Uh, different aspects of Catholic doctrine and see that even as they've developed over time, maybe gotten more elaborate, maybe had more um, uh, more nuance added to them, there's an underlying continuity, right? a continuity of principle. And by contrast, if you see a development that rejects that principle, then it is not a legitimate development. If you were to see a development, for example, that said, you know what, um, we're going to rethink that idea that marriage is an indissoluble bond, Um, then that would not be a legitimate development, but rather a a, a corruption, which Catholics would be right to reject. So that's the second um, note, continuity of principles. Uh, The third note is power of assimilation. So power of assimilation means that a doctrine has the ability to assimilate new ideas while remaining true to uh, its core. So a classic example of this is the assimilation of Aristotelianism by Catholic theology in the 12th and 13th centuries. So you've got traditional Catholic theology, and then it comes into contact with the thought of Aristotle. And it's able to take Aristotle, it's able to, in in a sense, the body of Christ eats Aristotle and digests it, right? And it assimilates those parts of Aristotle that are... In, uh, in continuity with Catholic theology, uh, the, the scholastic movement finds all sorts of um, wonderful ideas and concepts in Aristotle that it can use, um, especially, you know, a classic example, the idea of, of uh, form and hylomorphism, things being made of a combination of form and matter, which goes into uh, handily explaining how the sacraments work. Um, and then those aspects of Aristotelianism that are not harmonious with Catholicism get rejected by the body of Christ. They they get spit out, and so uh, the church is able to assimilate these things uh, into its thought um, in a way that keeps it uh, that that keeps the church faithful to what it has always believed. So uh, as we move through the scholastic period, we see that the the use of Aristotle serves as a way to Better exemplify Catholic doctrine, to explain it, to understand it, to help us uh, verbalize it better, to make more important distinctions. It um, it kind of uh, strengthens Catholic doctrine, right? But you can have assimilation where uh, like like what if we would have assimilated Aristotle and then we would have also assimilated the things that were against our faith and then kind of like turned our faith into Aristotelianism, to where our faith would have been actually diminished or corrupted. Well, that would not be a legitimate development, right? That's like that would be more like you get cancer and it spreads and kills you. <laughs> you know, that's not a that's not a development. Getting cancer isn't a development of health, you know, if the cancer kills kills the organism, right? So um I guess that's a that that biological example is a good one. It's the difference between eating something that you can digest and process versus getting something in you that kills the the organism. So the Catholic Church has assimilated many things. Um, in the early church, uh, the, the church fathers assimilated Greek philosophy, and they used the concepts of Greek philosophy in the service of the gospel. The same with uh, the, the same with Aristotelianism. The same with uh, with feudalism and chivalry and, and, and all these ideas. And, and so that the church demonstrates this assimilative power and continues uh, faithful to its original principles. These are authentic developments. Whereas if they don't, then then that would be uh, rejected. So, uh, so that's the third one: assimilative power. So the fourth note is logical sequence, and this means that one thing leads to another. Um, you can see a logical continuity between the um, the earlier practice or belief and what it subsequently uh, developed into. So I'm going to use an example from the Eucharist, right? Because one thing that uh, that uh, Protestants will say or even Eastern Orthodox when they are critiquing um, Catholic practices towards the Blessed Sacrament is they will say, look, a lot of the stuff you guys do now, like the Holy Hours, the Eucharistic processions, this is all kind of like just a Baroque hyper sentimentality that has no foundation in the early church, right? Um, so you go back to the early church, and what can we say to that? Well, you go back to the early church, and yeah, it's true. They didn't do holy hours, and they didn't do holy hours of reparation. You know, in the early church, they didn't do processions with the blessed sacrament in the second century.
0: In the middle um, of the place where they want to kill him. What's that? <laughs> in the middle of the city where they want to kill him.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, we we know the story of Saint Tarcissius, who was carrying the blessed sacrament. To, uh, to someone and got killed right while he was carrying it. Yeah. But that's a, that's a separate discussion. But um, so it's true that you didn't have an advanced development of Eucharistic piety uh, in the later sense in the early church. But what you do have in the early church is a profound belief in the real presence of Christ in the blessed sacrament. Now, when is Christ present? we can see in the early church, they believe that he becomes present after the uh, the, the liturgy of the, the Eucharist, after the mass, right? During the words of consecration or the prayers of the liturgy, um, that it is the action of the mass that makes Christ present in the blessed sacrament. So it stands to reason, logically, he is present in the elements after the consecration, right? And that is something that's indisputable from the early church. Now, if that's the case, it is true then that he is still present uh, if you have unconsumed consecrated hosts, right? If you've consecrated hosts for mass and they remain after the mass, then Christ is still present there. So that that just logically flows from the first um, principle. Now, if Christ is still present in those hosts, we have to store that in a place of reverence. We have to store it in, a, uh, in something befitting this sacred mystery, Uh, the writings of St. Cyprian mid third century reference that the Eucharist was kept in like a special box of some sort. This of course would develop into the tabernacle. In Carolingian times, they had something called a Eucharistic dove, which was a metallic dove that would hang down above the altar and they would keep the Eucharist reserved inside of it. So uh, if Christ is present in those, in that sacred species, you have to reserve it in a place of honor, right? Now, If we have it reserved in a place of honor in the church, then we should express reverence and devotion towards that location, right? If you come into the church and Christ is there in a box or tabernacle, you can't just act like it's nothing, like it's no big deal. You have to reverence it, bow, genuflect. Uh, And if you're going to make these acts of piety, of course, it's appropriate to pray in front of it, right? Why wouldn't it be if Jesus Christ is, is really there? Now, if, uh, if Jesus is really there, if he's present, then, uh, and if he's an object of piety, um, then why not expose him in something like a monstrance? We expose relics in reliquaries, right? Um, I personally think this is my personal theory. I personally think the practice of putting the Eucharist in a monstrance for veneration grew out of an earlier practice of displaying relics in like glass reliquaries for veneration, um, but it makes sense to move to put the Eucharist into a monstrance so everybody can venerate it. Now, if we can move the Eucharist from the place where it's reserved into the monstrance, why can't we move the monstrance itself around? Why can't we lift it up and bless people with it? Why can't we go on a walk with process around the city with it? Right, and so you can see how we've started with just the concept of the real presence, and we've logically gone step-by-step step to uh, Corpus Christi processions and everything that we see around Eucharistic veneration in the, uh, in the more recent church, right? And you see there's a beautiful logical sequence. One thing, one thing leads to another, right? <laughs> um, it's just one thing leads to another. So that is logical sequence. Now, sometimes you you can have things that don't progress in logical sequence, right? Like, um, oh, I, I don't know, just hypothetically. I'm just talking hypothetically, Steve. Of course. Let's say hypothetically you had a development where people were like, no, after you know 1800 years of reverencing the Eucharist like this, we're just gonna stuff it off in a side chapel. We're not gonna genuflect anymore. We're not gonna do adoration emphasize the community over the blessed sacrament. Um, we're going to not receive communion on our knees because whatever, we're not going to receive on the tongue anymore. Like if we were just going to throw out that trajectory, you know, the 1800 years we've had a trajectory that goes this way. And then all of a sudden we say, and eh, we're going to just go off in a totally different sequence. Right? So we kind of change the whole trajectory. We change the logical sequence and that would not be legitimate development because you're not progressing in the logical sequence anymore. It's no longer one thing leads to another. It's we made a big mistake and we need to course correct. And that's not a that's not a legitimate development of I mean, it's hypothetically, if those things were to happen, God forbid, um, that would not be legitimate development. Um so where was I? Oh, okay. Philip C
0: D will be available on his website at the end of the program. <laughs> Philip
1: sings the classics.
0: <laughs> Charles Kalum uh, and I will do that all day long. <laughs> really? Yeah. We're, I, I we're I never joking took... and we're going to make some CDs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I never took him to be a singer. I need to pay more attention to his podcast. Well,
0: it's not good. It's like grandma. Everyone's a great singer in grandma's eyes. <laughs>
1: yes. Um, okay, so that was our fourth fourth note, which was logical sequence. Our fifth note is anticipation of the future. And when I first read this, this really blew me away because it seemed counterintuitive um, People are always trying to interpret the future in light of the past, like interpret the present in light of the past. We're always trying to say, "What should we be doing now and looking back to the past for examples and of course, that's a praiseworthy thing um but the thing is um you're not going you're obviously not going to find the developments that we have today in the early church. So if I look at something, say like the papacy, like all the body of teachings surrounding the powers of the Pope, uh, all the ceremonial, all the uh, just concepts that Catholics have about the Pope, you're not going to find those fleshed out in the third or even the fourth century. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's true. And this is something Orthodox will always say like, well, you don't find this, you know, back in, in, you know, Back in those centuries, it's almost like they're challenging us to prove that our conception of the papacy as we have it today must exist in the third and fourth century. But what Newman says is that rather than uh, rather than trying to find the present in the past, we interpret the past in light of the future. So uh, anticipation of the um, of the future means that we that we go back, Um, And we see future developments outlined in earlier versions of the doctrine. So let's use another human analogy. If someone is a great artist, we might, let's say you have a famous artist, right? Someone who's a renowned sculptor, painter, whatever. We might look back into their earlier life and note examples of their talent, even in childhood, right? This is a thing people like to do. They like to go back into the childhood of celebrities and try to find examples like foreshadowings of their future greatness, right? Yeah. Um, uh, like you go back into you go back into Albert Einstein's past, and you see uh, him being the uh, you know excelling at math even in uh, middle school. By the way, it's a myth that he failed at math. Uh, he I, Einstein never failed at math ever. Um, he was always a brilliant. I don't know where that myth came from it was already going around during his life and he had to make a public statement about it where he said i have never ever failed math in my life and i don't know where this comes from um
0: i must've been out of it i didn't know that was actually a thing
1: <laughs> yeah yeah you'll you'll see these uh you'll see these bill these motivational billboards that will say like even einstein failed oh, yeah. at math once yeah. and they're trying to say like hey if at first you don't succeed try again you know yeah. But it's just a bad example because he never did fail at math. He was like always uh, like a, a savant at math from even a young age. Huh. But but whatever. Or uh, or let, let's use a better example like Mozart. We know that Mozart was playing concertos for the nobility of the Holy Roman Empire even as a a, a young boy. I think like eleven years old, huh. right? Huh. So you, you you take somebody and we we look at Mozart's youth and we say, Ah, yes, I can already see the seeds of future greatness in his childhood, right? But we're looking back from the perspective of the future. We are looking back. We are interpreting the past in light of the future. We are interpreting Mozart's youth in light of what we know he will become, right? So these childhood episodes are anticipations of their future work. So similarly, we have an authentic development when we can look back at earlier instances of belief and see its future development anticipated. So uh, for example, Marian Piety, in the 5th century did not look like Marian piety in the 17th century, but we can see the outlines of its later course already sketched in the beliefs of 5th century Christians. Similarly, we can look back at uh, 3rd, 4th, 5th century beliefs about the papacy and see how they anticipate future developments. This kind of ties in with logical sequence, Uh, but we can see those developments anticipated in, uh, in germ form, as it were, in seed form, uh, that need to develop and, uh, and grow over time. So when you're looking at a legitimate development, you can see an anticipation of its future when you look back in the past. You can look back and say, ah, I see where that came from. I can see why uh, this grew into that, right? Um, so uh, that's the fifth uh, the fifth note, anticipation of the future. Now, the sixth note is conservative action upon its past. So um, a true development, Newman says, is conservative in the course of its prior developments. So this means that as the doctrine or the practice develops, it carries with it the previous developments and it expands upon them. The best example of this is the traditional Latin mass, um, which, as we know, is solidified around the time of Gregory the Great, and then it kind of keeps developing through the Middle Ages. It's codified by Pius V. And then it kind of continues on in the post-Tridentine period. And it brings with it everything that it has picked up along the way. It's conservative with regards to its past. Um, It illustrates things. It expands upon them. It doesn't obscure them. It corroborates. um, It sheds light upon things. It doesn't correct what came before it. Um, so authentic developments then are going to see themselves as in continuity with the past. They see themselves as in continuity with what came before, not rupture. So they demonstrate a preservative attitude towards the past. So conservative action upon the past, uh, Newman says this has to do with the, I guess we would say the the attitude of the current state of the doctrine, Right and I'm I'm putting this in air quotes because doctrines don't have attitudes. (laughs) That was a lot of
0: air quotes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, but like, let's say something like, um, let's use an example of uh, Pius XII's definition of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary in 1950, right? So if you read this encyclical, Pius goes to great lengths to demonstrate how in this definition, he is preserving and carrying forward everything that came before on the subject. He talks about the earliest stories, the transitus Mariae narratives, the traditions about Mary's assumption. He talks about liturgical feasts. He talks about cities and churches named after the assumption. He talks about theological speculation of the scholastics and and different discussions on the question of the assumption. And he shows in a very logical way how what he is doing carries with and preserves everything that has come before. And so this definition demonstrates, according to Newman, a conservative action upon the past. It demonstrates continuity, demonstrates a preservative attitude towards the past. It sees itself as just another step in that long logical sequence, that that trajectory. So um, obviously then the, the counter to this, the opposite would be if something does not have a conservative action upon its past, it would view itself as something new as something that is uh, a rupture, right? It it would adopt an attitude of, I know in the past we used to do this, but now we do this. Mm -hmm. Or we used to believe that, but now we believe this, you know? So that is the opposite. That is not a conservative action upon the past. It's not carrying with it everything. Uh, So tradition in Newman's view is like a glacier. You know, a glacier moves and it scrapes everything and carries it all with it as it goes, right? (laughs) And it deposits it um, where the glacier moves. Um, so that's that's how a authentic development should work. It should be very preservative. And again, I think the traditional Latin mass is an excellent example of this. Um, the final uh, seventh note of authentic development, Newman calls chronic vigor. <laughs> and um, by chronic vigor, he means something like duration. Um, it means that organic developments have a Staying power basically, longevity, right? Sometimes you have developments that emerge and then die out after a time. Uh, like in the early church, you had these things called agape feasts, which were like these dinners that happened either, I think, immediately before the Eucharistic liturgy. You even see them in the New Testament. Paul complains about them. He says, You guys are coming to the Eucharist and you're drunk from your agape feast in 1 Corinthians 11, where he delivers his famous passage on the right reception of Holy Communion. And uh, agape feasts lasted for a few centuries and then they were suppressed and they died out because there were so many abuses surrounding them. Uh, uh, They they didn't have staying power. They didn't have what Newman calls chronic vigor. This is also a characteristic of heresies, which are typically of shorter duration. They might last for a few centuries, but then they dissolve. Uh, Even Protestantism today is in a state of dissolution uh, because you still have the the buildings, right? We still drive through town. We still have First Baptist, First Presbyterian, whatever. But if you look at uh, those churches and what they actually believe in practice, they demonstrate almost no continuity with what uh, Calvin or Luther believed, right? right? They're kind of in a state of dissolution. Um, they don't have staying power. They don't have chronic uh, vigor. So organic developments, on the other hand, possess longevity, because they're authentic, because they have all these these seven notes. They are well integrated into a great body of tradition. They possess staying power, unlike the corruptions or abuses, or just unlike other developments that just didn't make the cut. Uh, a great example here is communion in the hand. Uh, we know that in the first couple centuries, Christians uh, could receive communion in the hand, not like they do today, right. obviously. We know that there was a lot more to it. There was the u- use of a of a Eucharistic, uh, I can't remember the name, uh, the Eucharistic bib, I can't remember what it's called. Um, but you know what I'm talking about, um, receiving, receiving it on their knees, uh, you know, uh, totally different mindset, but still, even though, even though they attempted to, uh, hedge that practice in with all sorts of safeguards for reverence, it was still found better to go to communion on the tongue by the, um, by the early middle ages. And that is the practice that endured, right? So communion kneeling and on the tongue has had the chronic vigor, whereas communion on the hand was something that was done for a while and then it, and then it died out. So, um, so if a development has chronic vigor, that just means that it, it, uh, it can stay the course over a long period of time. It can kind of stick with all these uh, developments The as the trajectory moves along, as you get the logical sequence. Um, it endures because it's well integrated and it's authentic. So whew, that's a big answer to your question, but that is the seven characteristics or notes that help us identify the authentic development of doctrine and distinguish it from like corruptions, decays, abuses, or other um, deviations. And so... When you start to look at things like um, communion for the divorced and civilly remarried or ordination of women or um, many of the liturgical ideas that we see in the current church or just the, the Id- church's change in stance on the, the death penalty, if you were to run these things through the gamut of Newman's seven notes, you would see that none of these ideas meet all of these criteria. So if we were to go back in time and snag Newman uh, a, a, and present these things to him, uh, he would absolutely not see them as developments. He w- he would say these are corruptions or he'd these are <laughs> yeah yeah he he'd have yeah he would he'd be like are you serious <laughs> you know or if we were to tell him like hey guess what um, in, uh, in 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 less than a century the church is going to abolish minor orders you know <laughs> he would he would be like are you insane um, so. Uh, so I think what we need to do before we talk about development of doctrine or just throw it out as an invocation, we really need to go back and study what Newman meant by this because his actual, and you know, what's sad, uh, Steve is development of doctrine has been so abused that I've seen even traditional Catholics start kind of crapping on it. Um, where they'll be like, oh yeah, development of doctrine, it's just a excuse for, innovation, you know, where they kind of like go back and reject even Newman's idea of development of doctrine, which is a shame because it is a brilliant, brilliant essay. It's a brilliant way of analyzing what has happened in our history. It's a very handy way of kind of evaluating changes that we see in our own day and understanding what's going on. Um, And it was in identifying this is why Catholicism is a legitimate Outgrowth of early Christianity, whereas Protestantism is not. So far from, um, re- I know that people abuse the concept of development of doctrine, but what we need to do is go back and understand it more deeply, not to, um, you know, not to reject it.
0: I mean, that all made hundred complete sense, obviously. And thank you for doing that, uh, simplifying the, his teaching. But for somebody like, I don't know you probably saw this online, um, just trans in general they 're upset about the during Easter what was it in Spain where they they had the altar outside they shoot the the, the dove through the church and the the altar uh, grabs and shoots it back or uh there's been churches that were built with uh, freestanding altars and they're going oh that's so that's not trad at all but we're like wait a minute you see the basilicas in Rome they have the, they've had freestanding underneath all the kinos. yeah and isn't the main thing to be able to figure out those seven no's is you have to do your due diligence to learn history too.
1: Yeah, you do, and this was and it and the essay of uh, development of doctrine is where you find Newman's famous quote, where he says, "To be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant," or to take it out of its Protestant context, we could say, "To be fully Catholic is to be deep in history." Right? You have to understand these things. There is a danger um, when you look at tradition, where uh, I mean, many traditional Catholics are familiar with the danger of archaeologism um which is where you 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 kind of like reject development and you say I want the church to look as a snapshot of like the 2nd century right this is what the architects of the new mass did was where they they purported to go back and give us a like a cross section of the church as it existed in the 2nd century and i say purported to because they didn't even do that nobody knows exactly what things were like then they they basically took Uh, They took a few prayers and concepts and then filled in the rest with their own ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a danger. But what's also a danger is freezing, you know, tradition at some later date and saying, like, Catholicism must look like it did in the 1940s, you know, and trying to take a, a, uh, you know, a a still shot of the 1940s and saying this is Catholicism. Now, it is correct. And uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski has pointed this out. Many times, and I'm very grateful for this, is that development necessarily slows down over time. And I think we have to stress this as well. Um, You know, a child goes through a lot of growth between age one and five, and they go through a lot of growth between age five and 17, but not so much between, you know, age 17 and 30. And then eventually you get to a point where uh, where I, I will meet students that I that I taught like 15 years ago. And they're like, you look exactly the same. And uh, I'm like, that's very kind of you. <laughs> but, you know, as you get into adulthood, you st- you know, it's not like we just keep growing, you know, yeah. like, yeah. you know, like where I'm, uh, you know, you know, you know, when you're a kid, Steve, and you're like marking your height on the wall and you're like, whoa, yeah. I grow two two inches. At this rate, I'll be 37 feet tall by the it's time it's I'm 80, you know, no. Uh, development does not work like that. Uh, So it is true that as the structure grows and matures, the development slows down, right? And this is true with the liturgy. This is true with doctrinal developments. Um, It never entirely stops, but it does slow down. But so you really can't take a snapshot of any one time and be like, Yes, 1941, that is Catholicism, you know, or the the year 105 AD, that is Catholicism. You really have to look at the entirety of it. And um, I understand that traditional Catholics are upset that many things have been introduced that are frankly ruptures, that are abuses and uh, deviations from tradition, right? But tradition also is a big tent. Like you said, there are precedents for certain things. Um, there are precedents for freestanding altars for various reasons. Um, so I think we just need to take a big tent picture to this. And there's no point in, uh, you know, there's enough legitimate, uh, perversions of doctrine to be upset about without getting upset about, like, I I've seen trads that get upset because, you know, people genuflected on the wrong knee. I'm not even joking, you know, where they're like, oh, that's, you're not supposed to, the proper way to do a Roman genuflect is on this knee. And okay, fine. If you want to genuflect on that knee, that's the proper way to do it, whatever. But like, are you really going to throw shade on someone over? The, like, is that worth dunking on someone over? <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like there's enough, it's like, there's, there's people, you know, there's people trying to entirely dismantle the structure of the Catholic church and do all kinds of insane things. Yeah. And we're going to dunk on, on trads that are trying to do their best. And they genuflect on one. I'll, I'll make a video sometimes where i'll 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 make a long video on some historical subject and i'll mispronounce a latin word and some trad in the comments will be like your latin is a an embarrassment to traditional catholics (laughs) like you know like i'm like oh man you know Uh, i can
0: top that i just did i've been reading butler's in and i i i I don't know if you can pronounce polish names and someone told me you read at a sixth grade level that was terrible i go I'm sorry. I was trying my best.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. There's a, there's enough legitimate problems to be upset about. You know. Um, yeah. You know. I, pro- I You know. I. I make a. I. I. I promise. If we ever get a total restoration of tradition, I'll devote full time to studying Latin pronunciation.
0: <laughs> remember Sheen? He used to say that too. Because I better spell this right, or I'm gonna get thousand letters.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So at any rate, I guess this is just a way of saying like. Um, tradition is a, it's a river that flows in one direction. I don't want to make it seem like tradition is whatever we want. It's, you know, we've spent this whole hour talking about there's a specific form, structure, direction, trajectory, logical sequence that tradition moves. Um, So it does move in a certain way, but it's still a big river and there's room for various things uh, within it. But the thing is, is we have to just apply ourselves to understand these things To try to have a balanced, rational, historically informed approach, and that's why I think Newman is so helpful. So I would encourage anyone. um, I mean, this this episode has been a good introduction to. I just summarized 500 pages of the book for you guys, by the way, Um, so you don't need to read it. But if you if you are partial to Newman and you can uh, get through the book, I highly recommend picking up a copy and reading it. And he uses so many historical examples. I used a few. He like for every one of these notes, he has like a dozen examples to make his point. And so it's just a wonderful resource that I think all Catholics should know better.
0: And on top of the learning history part, uh, there's a certain site that uh, somebody has philcampbell.net. Uh, oh
1: yeah. Yes. Can
0: you tell us, can you tell us about what the, what you bring to the table on the site?
1: Uh, yeah. So this is basically just my, um, my overall site that has information on my books and also my classes. Um, I'm a full-time author and a teacher online. I teach for Homeschool Connections, which is a Catholic online curriculum provider uh, where you can can pick and choose your classes. You don't have to commit your kid to a whole huge program. You can just be like, uh, my kid needs second year Latin, and that's it. Or my kid needs U.S. history, that's it. And I have a list of all my classes I teach there. Uh, I also have lists of all my books and various uh, publications and links to other resources online. So basically, this is all things uh, me. Oh, there's my new book, Padre Pio, The Wounds of Love, a historical fiction novel about Padre Pio. So there's all sorts of great stuff there, um, uh, especially if you need resources for your historical education for your uh, children.
0: Very good. we we'll have everything linked in the show notes, obviously. And uh, Philip, no, thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking the time to do this. And appreciate you. Appreciate all you do.
1: Yeah. Let's do it again sometime.
0: Don't have to tell me twice. Yes.